Good morning, friends and family, everybody in between. Uh, this is Matt Moberg here, and you are tuning in at this very moment to part three of what I am affectionately calling a mini podcast series through which I'm trying to share how I went uh, from a more conservative, traditional understanding of scripture and spirituality as it pertains to matters of sexuality, specifically thinking about matters of inclusion and affirmation of my LGBTQIA brothers and sisters and cousins who are sacred, beloved children of God. I would like to share through this podcast series, um, I don't know how long it's going to take to go through the whole thing, but I would like to share my journey of how I went from where I was to where I am today without having to leave my convictions, my beliefs, my foundation behind. Oftentimes people feel like they need to do that. Oftentimes those who claim a, um, those who, who are trying to root themselves in the Jesus story, they feel like they need to sidestep the Jesus story to get to where I am now. And I just don't think that's true, nor do I think that's healthy. And especially I really don't think that's faithful. And so I would like to share this story. Um, there has been a sizable gap between the last time I did a little podcast and this present one because I've been on the road a little bit. I've been in California, in Montana, and I've been trying to get some Sabbath in my days, specifically trying to get some FaceTime with my family, which I think they appreciated, even if those of you who have enjoyed this podcast series have not as much. So that's my, my excuse for my absence. And so for those of you who have been emailing me asking me when podcast part three was going to come your way, that's just why it's taking a moment or two. Okay? We good? Great. Let's move on. For those of you who I've yet to meet who are tuning in and are thinking who is this over-caffeinated man on the other end of the stereo, uh, let me introduce myself. My name is Matt Mulbring, and I am one of the pastors of the Table of Minneapolis, which is a church in South Minneapolis. We gather at 5 p.m. on Sunday nights, should you ever want to join us. And I love our community. Um, I pastored there. I am pastored by the people who are there. And um, regardless of whether or not you call that place home, I'm grateful that you are here right now. I'm grateful for you, whoever it is that you may be. I'm grateful that you are willingly uh, leaning into this conversation, that you are flexing your intellectual bones and body to consider some of what I believe the Spirit has done in my own sport story and what I believe the Spirit may be doing in yours as well. To briefly catch you up to speed as to where we have been thus far, in the first episode, I tried to talk a lot about how, for me, in the journey of uh, learning my own brother is gay, in the journey of him coming out, in the journey of sitting with him through tears and laughter and hugs and more tears and everything in between, I talked a lot about how incarnational theology works, how a pivotal place for me to begin this work, this journey, was in recognizing how flesh and blood ought to factor in and form our responses to the biblical texts and the bodies that we share our lives with. When it comes to matters of moral discernment, the people that we share our lives with, the people that we sit across tables from in cafes, the people that we sit next to at baseball games, their stories actually do matter. Their stories uh, should be impacting and informing our own moral discernment and how we see the world and how we choose to live through our bodies in this world. And so I tried to get into a little bit of that. I tried to try to unpack um, some of that incarnational theology. In the second episode, um, I went straight to the text, and we looked at the story of Sodom and Gomorrah, and we looked at some of the Levitical laws in the book of Leviticus. These are two of the six 
passages among the 31,000 plus passages in the Bible that have been traditionally used to um, make the claim that God is against same-sex relationships, a claim that I found unfounded and I also found and find to be pretty dangerous. With that said, before we get into where we're going to go today, let me just say what I've said in each episode thus far. The reason why I'm doing this is this, is that ever since we uh, started this new community called The Table last fall, there genuinely, 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 that's a word, genuinely hasn't been a week that has gone by where I haven't had somebody from some place asking me some variation of the question, Matt, how did you go from the position where you held a traditionalist, non-inclusive, non-affirming understanding of the institution of a marriage to where you are today, where you are inclusive, where you are affirming? And, and because I think that's not only a fair question, but a question that I as a pastor have a responsibility to steward and hold very well, that's why I'm doing this. Secondly, I'm doing it for the people who are asking the question because by and large, the people who are asking the question are doing it with very good hearts behind it. These are not people who are trying to trap me. These are not people who are trying to wound me. These are not people who are trying to expose me as a heretic. Obviously, those people are out there. They're around. It's inevitable. But by and large, these are people who I meet with, who I sit across from at tables, and they genuinely have wide eyes, full hearts, trying to understand what is God doing in your story and how should it impact what God is doing in my story. Now, speaking of stories, uh, I want to go to a text in Matthew 19, a story in Jesus' own life. But before we step into that story, can I just tell you briefly a story of my own? Now, when I first started arriving at this more um, theologically affirming and inclusive position of my LGBTQIA family members, I remember one friend of mine in particular who is not like the wide-eyed, full-heart people I was just speaking about. One friend of mine in particular had a real issue with where I was going, a real issue with where I landed. And I remember one time meeting with this friend at a bar up in Shoreview, And he must have just come from a bumper sticker store or something or was driving behind somebody's car because his profound point that he felt like he urgently needed to bring my way. And I've heard less crass um, uh, pontifications about this point, but this was his. He looks at me and he says, Matt, the Bible is abundantly clear. Uh, You and I, like, we can disagree on if Abercrombie is better than Hollister or if Budweiser is better than Miller Lite. We can have these kinds of disagreements, but the Bible is abundantly clear. And at the beginning, in Genesis 1 and 2 in particular, it is very clear what it is and who it is that God made. God made, his words, not mine, Adam and Eve, not Adam and Steve. And he said this to me without even cracking a smile. He said this to me as if he had just laid down the ultimate intellectual bomb that conveniently rhymed real nicely. You know, and and to be honest with you, in that conversation, I, I don't actually remember what I said to him. Like, I don't remember what my response is, but... Hypothetically, let's just say that that somebody is you and and you've been carrying around that same bumper sticker in the back of your mind. Today, I just want to talk about what it was that he was talking about. I want to talk about that text at the beginning and I want to talk about 
the Eden account because it is so formative and forceful in our understanding of this conversation and how we go about living faithfully in today's world. And so as a Jesus person, I think that we should talk about this, especially because Jesus himself, well, he was talking about it. Again, in that text in Matthew 19, with a parallel account in Mark 10, we have this exchange that is recorded between Jesus and the Pharisees, and this take that takes it all in has been incredibly formative in understanding the scriptural priority on covenantal partnerships, and it's been incredibly forceful in keeping LGBT people from experiencing them. In Matthew 19, Jesus is getting hounded by the locals. He has a group of men who are all up on him, asking him all kinds of questions. But one of the particular questions that Jesus is responding to here is when they are trying to gauge the morality of, hypothetically speaking, leaving their wives. You know, just asking for a friend. I'm sure their wives were psyched to find out this moment would be kept for the next 2,000 years. Upon hearing their curiosity, Jesus turns to them, he looks them in their eyes, and he takes on the subject at hand by asking them first a question. He says to them this, Haven't you read that at the beginning the Creator made them male and female? And then he said, For this reason a man will leave his father and mother and be united to his wife, and the two will become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. Therefore, what God has joined together, let no one separate. Please notice that not once, but twice, Jesus talks about the power and the permanence of two becoming one flesh. But he starts the conversation with talking about the first male and the first female, which is coincidentally where many choose to stop the conversation. Because for many, including my friend at that bar, clarity has already come upon that first line. From this text that has captured this exchange, many people with traditionalist positions have taken this to be clear-cut evidence that Jesus is for and with and behind heterosexual marriages, and that Jesus makes this clear by citing Genesis 1.27 and the story of the first creation of male and female Adam and Eve. And let me make it clear out of the gates right now that I don't disagree. I, I actually do think that Jesus is, is really for heterosexual marriages. I actually do think that God uh, strongly endorses marriages that are between a man and a woman. I guess I'm just not entirely sure what that has to do with how Jesus feels about same-sex marriages. That just doesn't seem to me to be a healthy line of logic for any of us to try and walk. To jump to the conclusion and make the claim that because Jesus endorses heterosexual marriages means that he must simultaneously be opposed to same-sex marriage, that is a logical fallacy that upon any level of critical thought, when properly applied to it, would see it completely crumble. Because here's an example of how that sounds. Let me give you an example from last week. Lauren and I, we are at this dive bar in Billings, Montana. Actually, not really a dive bar. It's a classy little joint. Um, but we're at the bar, and we're having dinner. And I ordered a cheeseburger. She ordered a chicken sandwich. When said cheeseburger arrived before me, when I sank my teeth into this juicy cheeseburger, I was left with no other choices but to sing of its praises. It was an amazing Burger. It was so good. I think it actually won a trophy in the, in the bar. I think I saw a plaque on the wall. And so forgive me if I'm going to stand up and shout about how good this cheeseburger is, which is exactly what I did. In doing so, in the worship session that I was holding in this said bar, 
I wasn't simultaneously condemning the chicken sandwich that Lauren got. From all that I could see, though I did not taste it, it appeared to be a lovely sandwich. I had no beef with it, other than the fact that it had no beef in it. It seemed like a good sandwich. Do you see how broken that line of logic is when we actually just go to the next line of questioning? <laughs> to see this moment in Matthew 19 where you have a group of straight men asking about men leaving their female wives and Jesus responding with the text about the marriage of the first man and the first woman, it is bad logic to see Jesus advocating for the permanence of heterosexual marriage and equate that to the prohibition of homosexual marriages. Furthermore, not only is this bad logic, it misses the point of the passage, and we miss this point because we misunderstand how Jesus is pointing. Stay with me now. In Jesus' citing of the Eden account, the hermeneutic question that you and I have to ask is, is Jesus here being descriptive or is Jesus being prescriptive? In other words, is Jesus explaining what had happened or is Jesus explaining what must continue to happen? And if you're asking me for my take on it, where I've landed on that question right there is, I would answer you yes. Uh, definitely. Couldn't agree more. Uh-huh. It's both, isn't it? And here's my why behind saying that. When Jesus hears the question from these curious men, Jesus' first response to the question that has come his way is, he says that, in the beginning. In other words, Jesus says, in a different time than the moment we are standing in right now, in a different place, in a different setting, in a different scene. It is a different space. It is back there. It is the setting of a particular story. So Jesus responds to this question. He says, in the beginning, God made them male and female, which is very different than saying, since the beginning, God makes all male and all female. And I find that to be incredibly encouraging because God doesn't. In the beginning, God did make them male and female. That, is, that does seem to be the evidence at hand. But as time has stretched on, it would seem to me that the Creator has gotten more creative. In fact, as modern research has revealed to us today, uh, and the numbers do vary a little bit, but modern research has shown that nearly one out of every 1,000 babies who, upon being born and upon meeting their trained doctors with modern medical equipment, they leave their doctor scratching their head because the doctors cannot discern what that baby's sex actually is. They cannot discern if that baby is male nor can they discern if that baby is female. In fact, in our country today, the United States of America, 1.7% of our population, which comes out to roughly 5.5 million people total, uh, were born intersexual and thus did not enter into Eden or elsewhere on earth as clearly male nor clearly female and yet fully identified still as beloved children of God, fully affirmed by Christians here and there as people who were formed in their mother's wombs with intimacy and intentionality behind it. Now, where am I, where am I going with this? Well, obviously, there's so much that needs to be said whenever we are trying to talk about sex and gender and identity. It is not a simplistic thing, and so I don't want to paint it as if it was. 
But for the purposes of this conversation today, I'm merely in bringing this up into your attention to put on display how Jesus is making a descriptive claim in this text. That is, he is describing what happened in a particular story and scene, but Jesus is not making a prescriptive claim. Jesus is not saying that this is what it must look like in all future scenes. Now, that's not to say that Jesus doesn't get prescriptive elsewhere in this text. Because he sets up what he says next by saying, for this reason, which is to say, in other words, because of this particular story, here's how it impacts your story. Here's how it impacts our story. And then he proceeds to mention the two becoming one, not once, but twice. And the question we ought to ask is why? Why does he do that? What is the prescriptive power that is so palpable in this text? Why does Jesus say that this story still has things to say? To answer that question, those questions, let's, let's go back. Let's talk about Genesis, baby. Let's talk about you and me. In the beginning, or in the story of how the beginning begun, which was written in roughly, give or take a few years, 587 BC, during the Jewish exile in Babylon, we have a story that is being strung together both from oral traditions that have been passed along in Jewish history and from oral traditions or campfire stories that have been passed along through Babylonian history as well. In this story, we have this mosaic, this composite of, of all these other stories coming together to talk about where people came from, how the earth began, how their story began, what God, the creator, is actually like. And so as you page through Genesis 1 and you page through Genesis 2, you get a window into what they came up with. And we read this story about how God created the heavens and God created the earth and how God created everything in them and God created everything on them. God put the Pacific Ocean on the planet and the Atlantic next door. God made roses and reptiles and grass and streams. And after all of these things were brought into being, God sized it up, God looked it over, and just as God was about to break out in song and say that it all seems so good, God notices one thing that isn't. In a world where everything was wired to go right, in a world where all the dials were set correctly, something somehow went wrong. God notices a crack in the canvas, and then God names the crack for what it is. God says, it is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper suitable for him. If you would do me a solid, highlight those words, mark them up on your page, tattoo them on your arm or your neck. God looks over the land and God is overwhelmed by how good it all is, but then God is undone by how lonely Adam seems to be. And then in response to Adam's loneliness, in response to watching Adam lay in his bed late at night listening to Dashboard Confessional again and again and picking up flower petals and doing all those things we've all had to do at times, God says that it is not good for man to be alone. Let's pause. Man, which in the Hebrew is the word Adam, is a masculine now. This is a specified gender. Hold on to that for a moment. God says that it is not good for this specified male, this man, to be alone. And then God says, I will make a helper suitable for him. For the man, for the Adam, God says God will make a, a helper, which in Hebrew is the word ezer, which is also a masculine. Now, though its masculinity is muted with the adjective suitable that is attached, which in Hebrew is negid. Now, a point of clarification. 
for many people who hold a non-affirming traditionalist position in this particular conversation, knowing that this Izer would eventually become a woman named Eve, they point to the construction that's laid out in creation that clearly identifies the essence of gender complementarity, and they extract from it a patriarchal hierarchy. In this hierarchy, for many who hold that position, women stay out of the pulpit and are kept in the kitchen with the kids because in this hierarchy, women are merely here to help men do what men were born to do. And for many of us, that may sound indeed like it's congruent with the definition of what a helping hand looks like. It might sound like what a helper should do, but it is not what an Azer does. An Azer is not a Robin to the Batman named Adam. If it were, if an Azer was only to be Scottie Pippen next to Adam, the Michael Jordan, then I guess I just don't understand why biblical writers would proceed throughout the Hebrew scriptures to later identify God using the same word. As they do in Exodus 18, Deuteronomy 33, 1 Samuel 7, Psalm 33, and 70, and 115, and 121, and also in Daniel 11. God goes by that term, Azer. And so I, I believe that we collectively, universally ought to come to the conclusion that they're really, when we understand what a suitable helper looks like in Azer in this context, we can see a lot of things, but one thing that we cannot see is some sense of inferiority in this text or in any of the other texts that I just listed. And if we cannot see inferiority in these texts, then we cannot treat women as inferior in any context. Furthermore, in this moment that precedes the creation of Eve, I, I just have to ask the question, why doesn't God foretell about the creation of Eve? When God sees the issue of Adam being alone and says that it is not good, why does, not God, why does God not drum up in God's mind the creation of Eve and say, in response to Adam's loneliness, in response to the angst of this lonely man, I will provide the awe of a lovely woman. Why does God speak only about a suitable helper and then leave Adam to name which helper is sufficiently suitable? Because that is how it plays out, right? I mean, remember what happens next in our story. In Genesis 2, 18 through 25, we watch as God brings forth all of the creatures of both the land and the sky and the sea to be named and known by Adam. And yet, despite the enormity of this task and the accomplishment in getting it all done, you feel the collective sigh in the scripture at the end when the narrator says that after all of these animals walked in and out of the lonely man's life, there still was no suitable helper to be found. Which then begs the question, would the creation story have stopped if there was? Like, what if Adam was tired and it was the end of a long day and there was this ostrich that was walking by and they just locked eyes and it just felt right and there was something good and then one thing led to another. I'm, I'm trying to get to the question here. This is getting weird. Why does God run the risk of Adam choosing the wrong partner prior to Eve ever being created? Why does God provide all the animals as options and run the risk that what if Adam actually says yes to one of them? What if Adam does like have this lovely cuddling experience with this warm cocker spaniel and he looks at that cocker spaniel and says, you know what, you are just what I've been looking for. You can love the loneliness away. You are the cuddle partner that I need. Why does God run the risk of providing all of these options prior to Eve ever being created? And could it have something to do with the fact that suitability is subjective? 
and that it was only Adam who could know who was capable of loving his loneliness away. For me, as I have studied the story of Scripture, as I have spent time in this text and other texts, the only answer that I can claim without contradicting 1 John's claim that God is love is to say yes to that. I do believe that there is this reality to God that is like love, and love can only operate in freedom as an invitation, but can never employ fear as an imposition. That is to say that God can merely provide the menu, but God does not order up the meal. God can offer up God's self fully to creation, but it's up to creation still to choose whether or not they will fall at God's feet or put nails through God's hands. From Genesis to Revelation, we see human beings being endowed with a sense of agency, of choice, of creating their own futures by making and choosing and deciding their next steps. And Adam was the first to do so. And so when God parades all of the ostriches and all of the cows past Adam and not one of them seems to be suitable enough for the man, it is the man who says that they are not suitable enough. And it is at that point, when Adam reaches that conclusion, that God goes back into the creative kitchen and God cooks up something that is more similar to Adam than the animals ever could be. And then it happens. In our catalytic moment in the story, we watch as one night, as an extension of the previous parade of animals that just came in and out of Adam's life, God offers up a new addition to the menu. In this moment that follows the moment of naming and knowing the animals, God proceeds to put Adam to sleep and God surgically removes a rib from Adam's side. And the next thing you know, Adam wakes up and there she is just walking down the street. Adam rubs the sleep out of his eyes. Adam looks at this girl who is sitting next to him and Adam says, This is now bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. Which leads the narrator to say what Jesus would later echo. That is why a man leaves his father and mother and is united to his wife, and they become one flesh. When Adam wakes up and he sees this Ezer named Eve sitting next to him, Adam has found a helper that is sufficiently suitable for him, and he says yes, because with her, they are the former two who are now one flesh. And we need to know why that is. And most people assume that they know why that is. For a lot of people, including Bumper Sticker Bobby that I spoke about at the beginning of this episode, this is where they tend to base their beliefs in the bodies of men and women and the differences that are embedded in both. Anatomically speaking, when one person has a penis and the other person has a vagina, you can put the puzzle together in such a way where two people with two different sets of biological plumbing can come together in a powerful and procreative way that manifests as one flesh. And I understand that take, but I also need to ask this question. While it's true that only a man and a woman can come together for the purposes of procreation, is that the reason why God brought these two together? Was procreation on God's mind when these two came together to form one flesh? Because that doesn't seem to be the story that we just read. The story that we just read says that the reason why Eve was created to be Adam's Azer was because the animals who were already created were not sufficiently suitable as helpers. Eve's arrival in Eden isn't for the purpose of her and Adam having kids, but for the purpose of her and Adam holding communion. From this story that Jesus cites, 
Eve appeared in Eden, not for the purpose of procreation, but to provide Adam with an end to his isolation. So yes, the sex of these two species, it does matter in this story. Especially again, when we remember that this was written in the 6th century by writers who are in Babylonian captivity, who are trying in their efforts to tell the story of where they came from and what God is like. And as complicated as such a task would already be, it would have only been more complex if they said, oh, and by the way, it was Adam and Steve, not Adam and Eve. Right? No. For telling this story, if any other story in the future is ever going to be told, you need a man next to a woman at the beginning. You need both sets of tools to build the baby. Adam's partner couldn't have been a man any more than Eve could have been a postmenopausal or infertile woman. You and I would not be here today if God made Ricky from Adam's rib instead of Eve. But that is a descriptive claim not a prescriptive claim. In other words, it is describing what happened in this particular place at this particular time, but it's not dictating what must happen in all other places and in all other times. Eve was not created for the purpose of procreation, but to end Adam's isolation. Adam was alone, and God did something about it. God said that in a world where everything is good, that right there is not. And in response to this loneliness, Eve enters onto the scene, and the two become one flesh for the purpose of relationship. The Genesis text portrays marriage, our first marriage, as a solution, not for incompleteness, but for aloneness. If this story is about anatomical differences, if that's what we're, we're supposed to be learning about this, is that we need differences in our biological plumbing, if that is what is essential for two to become one flesh, if Jesus is citing this story to endorse that and prescriptively require anatomical differences in future marriages, well, then we ought to see this understanding of one flesh appear elsewhere in the scripture, and yet we don't. Outside of this text here, in this moment between Adam and Eve, we find no other text that draw a clear connection between gender and biological differences, though we do find writers speaking often about one flesh. Throughout the Bible, the term flesh surfaces in many different scenes, actually, used metaphorically every time to describe the ties of kinship and intimate community. We see it in Genesis 29:14, for example, where upon learning that Jacob was actually his family, Laban shouts out, Surely you are my bone and my flesh. Again, in 2 Samuel 19, 12, David, he is speaking to the elders of Judah, and David says, You are my brothers, you are my bone, you are my flesh. When Adam wakes up and he sees Eve sitting beside him, Adam isn't celebrating a body that is anatomically wired to fit with his body because it is different. Adam is celebrating the similarity between his body and hers. That's why he says, bone of my bone, in flesh of my flesh, you are my family. We have this shared commonality and connection. I have found somebody in a world that I have yet to do that inside of. Now again, this isn't to say that the term one flesh doesn't have a sexual dimension to it. Um, Tim Keller, he actually wrote about this once. He says that the word united inside of this text, it means to make a binding covenant or contract. Uh, and this covenant brings every aspect of two persons' lives together. To call the marriage one flesh then means that sex is understood as both a sign of that personal legal union and a means to accomplish it. Now let me try to paraphrase for you what Tim Keller just said. And let me do so in a way that I'm sure Tim Keller wouldn't be psyched about. But what Tim Keller is essentially saying here 
is that yes, sex is incredibly powerful, but what Tim Keller is not saying here is that sex is particular. One flesh doesn't depend upon one particular kind of sex, but instead it depends upon the deep relational kinship-like connection that sex can play a part in cultivating. The primary movement in the text is not from unity to differentiation, but from the isolation of one person to the deep blessing of shared community. This is why we allow the movement, we, we make sense of the meaning inside of this movement when we watch this lonely man move from the animals to Eve, from the menu to the meal, because it's only you and it's only me and it's only Adam who can actually know who our suitable helper is. For this male, Adam, and for the majority of men after him, that suitable helper looked like a girl. But in Jesus' citing of this story, Jesus is being descriptive and he's not being prescriptive because the suitable helper for me and the suitable helper for most of the men out there isn't the same suitable helper from my brother Ben, it isn't the same suitable helper from my friend Keon, nor is it the same suitable helper from my friends Courtney or Chantel or others who are out there still. For my gay brother and my gay friends, a suitable partner helper is a gay man, not a straight woman. For my lesbian friends, for them, a suitable partner is a lesbian woman, not a straight man. In response to this particular man's loneliness, God says that God will make for him a suitable helper. And then in Adam's own subjectivity, God waits to see who Adam will select. Which is why Eve comes after the animals, because what is suitable for you isn't suitable for everyone else. And God will merely provide the menu, but God does not order the meal. Love will merely provide the invitation, but love will never enforce an imposition. Now, to my Hebrew friends out there, they will acknowledge, and maybe they'll even push back a little bit on what I'm saying by pointing to the term suitable helper, saying that um, this term actually encompasses in it some sense of difference. And I actually think that's true. There is difference embedded inside of the phrase suitable helper, which we see in Genesis 2.18 and 2.20. Pope John Paul II, he acknowledges that um, this term, when we, we literally translate it, it means a help similar to himself. There are similarities, but there is also difference. My point being is that sometimes this difference that we are speaking about, sometimes it does mean the biological plumbing of one person doesn't look like the biological plumbing of another. But sometimes it means something else. Sometimes the difference isn't between what's on your body, but sometimes the difference is in what's in your heart. Sometimes the difference is that one person loves classical music and crossword puzzles while the other person loves DMX and going to Lollapalooza. Sometimes the difference is in that one person is prone towards anxiety and caution while the other person is more of a free spirit, more impulsive. A suitable helper in this context emphasizes both similarity and yet it also holds space for difference as well. And when it's found... When you actually find a suitable helper that you do share some commonality with and some difference together as well, then you will find somebody who is fit to fight and to love the loneliness away from your body. Then you will find somebody whom with you can enter into a one flesh reality with, one intimate community. Adam wakes up and he celebrates this woman who is like him because as long as she is here, his loneliness will have to leave. 
To be one flesh with another is not for the purposes of creating another, but for the purposes of finding somebody that you can be with. Finding somebody that you can spend your days with and be known and know in this deep and intimate way. God looks out over all of the land and he says that it's all good except for that one person who is wired for connection and yet has nobody to connect to. Has nobody to actually know. To give their lives towards. In the same way that God gave of God's life and God's self to create the world. And we actually see this made abundantly clear in in the text that comes after this. I know I'm being redundant right now, but I want to drive this point home because we so often miss it. It, it, it just misses our modern eyes and our mo- modern take on this text. But we see this coming forward both in what the text in Genesis says, but also what Jesus echoes later in Matthew when he talks about how for this reason a man leaves his mother and father. And if we're not talking about community, if we're not talking about intimate kinship when we talk about leaving mom and dad for that reason, then this text just doesn't make sense. It doesn't make sense not only because, well, I mean, clearly Adam and Eve, they didn't have a mom and dad to leave, but because most people didn't leave their mom and dad. In most ancient Mediterranean cultures, sons usually wouldn't leave mom and dad when they got hitched. Actually, in in any society in which agriculture plays a significant role, Leaving can be economic suicide. And so what would happen is that sons would get married, but sons would stay on the land and they would work the land with their fathers. In many of these cultures, the marriage of a son, it simply meant the addition of another room. It meant a home upgrade more than anything else. But you didn't actually leave mom and dad. And yet Jesus says it is for this reason that you leave mom and dad. And so what is the text trying to say? What is happening in the one flesh nature of this union is a realignment of primary kinship ties. Essentially, when the son gets married, as Jesus speaks of and as Genesis speaks of, it is a way of saying, yes, mom and dad, I still love you. I do. I care about you. But my primary loyalty now lies with her. When I got married, mom and dad, I love you. But I'm most loyal now to Lauren to my suitable helper. She is the top priority for me, my Azair. My loyalty is leaving you in our family of origin, and it is now directed solely and exclusively to her and our new family that we are creating. Why? Because the primary impetus, again, behind Adam finding Eve, or you finding your helper that you have subjectively deemed to be suitable for you, is because it isn't good for you to spend your days alone. And so you need to give yourself fully to the one that you are with. Because it isn't good for you to spend your days alone. Unless, of course, it is, right? I have friends of mine, I'm sure you have friends of yours, who would tell you that they have felt called and compelled and fully satisfied in living a single life. And as we read the New Testament, God blesses that. God honors that. They are living this life without an Isaiah, without an intimate helper. But they are doing so because they had a choice to do so, and that is what they chose. When trying to understand the story of Adam, we are looking at a man who is alone but does not have a choice to choose otherwise. 
When God looks at the land and says it's all good except for Adam who is all alone, God's not talking about the chosen aloneness, nor is God talking about those who are searching for their somebody still. God is talking about an aloneness that is compulsory and not compelled. God isn't sad and upset because Adam chose to be alone. God is sad because Adam never had that choice at all. And I mention this because for many people who hold traditional non-affirming positions without realizing that they are doing so, I do not believe that there is violence behind their intent, even if in these cases there is violence in their impact, there is a risk being run that is often unacknowledged. And here's what that risk is. For people who are holding on to a traditional teaching of marriage that is non-affirming of those who are in same-sex relationships, a traditional teaching of marriage that denies the subjectivity of suitability and the complexities of gender as well, in saying that people are not allowed to find suitable partners of the same sex, we inevitably end up saying that they must live out the rest of their days alone, which, correct me if I'm wrong, is an endorsement of the one thing that God refused to endorse. To say that it is okay to be gay as long as you remain celibate is to say that the one way for you to be good is the first way that God said is not good. You see the problem inside of that? God said that it is not good for man to be alone. God says that it is not good for a woman to be alone. And more and more we are starting to understand why. More and more, we are starting to understand that our sexuality is more central in our story than we had ever previously perceived. Sexuality, it means so much more than physical arousal and orgasms. It's attached to our capacity to feel affection, to experience delight in the life of another, to expand and evolve inside of a relationship, to be wide-eyed in wonder as you fall in love with the person that draws you so much outside of yourself that you end up measuring the goodness in your life by what's good about their lives. Our sexuality is part and parcel of the human capacity for love, which is why we are here. Our ability to love, our participation fully inside of that ability is how we connect with God. We are not just mathematical machines who can intellectually connect the right dots to lead us to make the right calculated calls on who to cherish and who to dismiss. We are fully human. And to be told to restrain these central pieces of your own humanity that are in you for the purpose of connecting with others around you is to dehumanize people, and furthermore, it is to desecrate the Creator's artwork that stood since the beginning of time. Salvation in the Greek language is the word sozo, which means wholeness and full health. And when traditionalists lead the LGBT community to repress their own affections, their own passions, their God-ordained desires for covenantal relationships, they are working against the salvation of the world, and it is not a victimless crime. It's making people choose between religion or being whole, between God or being healthy. And that dichotomy is dangerous and that dichotomy is antithetical to what is revealed in the person of Jesus. And so to go back where we started, when Jesus cites this text in Matthew 19, Jesus is celebrating the power of permanent partnerships between two people who have found suitable somebodies, two people who will find suitable somebodies that will stay by each other's side, the power of connection between two people in a world that can leave you often alone. Jesus is reminding them and he's commanding them to remember that what God has brought together don't let anybody try to separate it. 
for it is against God's will, God's initial angst in this world, it is against God's will that one should have to be alone. There is a power in this permanence. There is a power in the covenantal beauty of a permanence like this. May we all have the integrity to steward our energy in such a way where we are practicing permanent partnerships like this instead of prohibiting others from partaking in them. What God has brought together, let nobody try to separate. You are loved, friends. Have an incredible day.